So back in college, Heather and I uh, took a trip um, uh, and to go see some friends. We lived down in Fullerton, and we took a trip up to L.A. to go visit these friends. And we had directions. They, they had given us directions. Now, here's what we need to understand for some of us. Let me explain how directions worked back then. We didn't have phones. And so there's two ways in which you could get directions. One was to reach in the seat in your back seat and pull out the, does anybody remember what it was called? The Thomas Guide. Some of you are like, huh, what's a Thomas Guide? They were these big books, and they were huge, and you had to flip, and they didn't make sense, and you had to flip to random pages to find where you're going. And if you didn't have a Thomas Guide, the other option was to do what? What did you have to do? You could stop and ask, but prior to that, if you get the directions in advance, you talk to your friends or whoever it is, and you have them provide you turn-by-turn directions, Right? Now we just take that for granted, turn by turn, it's in your phone. Your, Google didn't invent turn by turn. It's been around for a long time. Back then, you know, in the old days, it was like, you know, turn at that buggy and then, you know, turn at that point. But, but nowadays, you know, they provided. So, so they had provided us the directions on how to get there. So we get up to L.A. And as we arrived into L.A., we got enamored by all that was around us. And we got so enamored with it, and so distracted by it that we decided to take a detour. We decided to, to check out the city before we went to visit our friends, a city we'd never been to, and it was big and lots of streets and all of this. And so we definitely got sidetracked from our destination. Well, we re- eventually got to the point where we are like, all right, let's, we, we need to go. We picked the time. We need to meet back up with them. The problem was this. We had gotten so sidetracked, so thrown off our destination We had no idea where we were. We were completely lost. Has anybody here ever gotten lost? Right? A a bunch of us, right? I mean, any guy here ever gotten lost? (laughs) Just making sure we're on the same page here. See, I wasn't lost. Heather was, but, uh, you know. So we were lost, and we're driving around. We're having no luck, and it's just bad, and we're late. and, And next thing you know, it got worse. We turned down the street, and it was a one-way street. I think we were going the right way. As we were driving down the street, first thing I want to point out to you is we were the only car on the street. Second thing I want to point out to you is in the distance, we saw glowing piles of light. As we got closer, we realized that the light we saw was fire that was coming out of, uh, you know, 50-gallon drums that were kind of in the street, we stopped. We looked, and all of a sudden we noticed all these makeshift homes on the side of the road. Shopping carts full. As we started to inch down the street, people stood up from these tents and these makeshift homes. They started walking into the street. We freaked out. I looked at Heather, and I'm like, what do I do? And Heather looks at me and says, don't stop. (laughs) And I'm like, but I'm in my parents' 1983 Accord. You know, if something happens to this car. So I said, okay, I'm not stopping, no matter what. I didn't know what I meant right then. I, I, we were scared. We started shaking. It, everybody looked kind of scary. It looked like, you know, those, those, you know, zombie movies. 
You know, that's kind of what's happening here. And we can't turn around. There's no way to turn around. And I'm like, okay, we're going to move forward. And so I put it in first. And I take off, and I get up to 60 miles an hour in 18 seconds. Those cars were so fast back then. Uh, but I started heading down that street, and I started picking up speed. And I got to tell you, people were walking in, and it was scary. And I didn't know what I would do if somebody would have walked in front of me. I praise God to this day. We made it off that street with no altercation. Like I said, to this day, I have no idea what would have happened, what we would have done. We got out of there. We were shaking. It probably took us a half hour to stop shaking. We were so scared. Eventually, we had to pull over, you know, put 10 cents in a payphone, call our friends, say we're lost, and they got us to their house. Some of us here this morning have been on a journey, a journey towards God. And we haven't quite arrived there yet. We've been figuring this whole God thing out. We've been trying to figure it out. We've been coming to church. We've maybe been reading the Bible. And we're trying to figure out if God should be in our life. You're on that journey towards a relationship with Him. Others of you are here this morning and you have a relationship with God, but you have gotten lost on the journey. And then there's still others of us here this morning. We have a relationship with God, but we've chosen to put it on hold because we got sidetracked, because we got enamored by what's around us. So what do we do? What do we do if we've drifted from God? What do we do if we've gotten sidetracked in our journey, in our relationship with God? What do we do if we're just flat out lost as it pertains to our relationship with God? How do we get back? How do we get back on track? How for some of us, as we're just seeking God here and still trying to figure out if we want God in our life, what do we do? Well, Genesis 35 provides us answers to these questions. I'd like you to turn there now, Genesis 35. And in a few minutes, we'll pick up in the first verse. If you haven't been with us throughout the summer, we've discovered that Jacob has done, that's who we're looking at, Jacob, Jacob has done some, some awful deeds, and consequently his brother Esau wanted to kill him. So he leaves town and decides to go live with his relatives in a distant land. On his way to that distant land, he stops at a place called Luz. And, and it's a place in Genesis 28 where Jacob then renames it Bethel. It's there that he kind of makes this connection with God. This, he has this relationship with God. And he, at that place, commits to God to return back to Bethel one day soon. Well, Jacob ends up spending the next 20 years of his life under the authority of his father-in-law and his employer, Laban. Then, after 20 years there, he leaves Laban and he and his family decide to say it's time to go back to Bethel. But Jacob got sidetracked. In his journey back to Bethel, he got close, but not all the way. And so Jacob and his family spent the next 10 years of his life in the pagan town of Shechem. Now, what was the result, or where did his time in Shechem lead him? If you were here last week, Pastor Derek did an incredible job teaching about it. Jacob and his family, as you think about the message last week, what, what can we say? It's like, wow, right? Oh my goodness, a total nightmare in Shechem how they acted, and how they behaved. It was worse than even a non-Christian family. You see, while in Shechem, Jacob and his family had 
drifted so far from a relationship with God. Family members were, were, were spending a lot of time with the wrong people. That ultimately led to a rape. That ultimately led to Jacob's sons exercising a revenge killing, which led to them ultimately destroying the city and killing all the men. There was nothing good about it. Everything was wrong. Jacob's family was guilty. They were spiritually lost. They were completely distant from God. And with that as a backdrop, what I want to do is I want to pick up the story. That's where we left off last week. Let's look at verse 1, Genesis 35. It says this, Then then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau, you know, 30 years ago. There's two commands here in Genesis 35, verse 1. It's the commands, arise and go up. Your NIV only says go up, but there's actually two Hebrew words, arise and go up. In other words, with God, there's a sense of urgency. God's saying to Jacob, look, Jacob, you've delayed for so long that you and your family are far from me now. I mean, the godless living, the rape, the looting, the murder. Jacob's finally time. It's time to follow through with the commitment that you made 30 years ago. There's no more procrastinating. There's no more putting it off. It's time to go back to Bethel. And you need to do it now. You see, Jacob is call, or God is calling Jacob to himself. And you need to hear very clearly this morning that God is calling you to himself. God is calling you to himself. From a physical point of view, there's only a few miles that separates Shechem from Bethel. Only a few miles from where Jacob is and his appointed destination with God. Think about it. Only a couple miles separated Jacob from God, separated Jacob from God's will. For the past 10 years, Jacob has lived near Bethel but not near the God of Bethel. Jacob's condition, I suspect, it's not much different than many of ours today. Perhaps there's some of us here today, outwardly, you know, it appears like, you know, we're, we're, we're good with God. But inwardly, we know we've come up short. We're a few miles away. We've stopped short of wholehearted devotion, of fully surrendering our life to God. So God says this, let's get you back. Let's get you there. Let's get you to a place. Let's get you back to a place of wholehearted devotion. Get you back to a place of faith. Let's get you back to a place of being fully surrendered to me. Where is that? Bethel. It was at Bethel that Jacob had his first encounter with God. Remember, that's the story we looked at early in the summer. That was really his conversion to faith. It was at Bethel that God first told Jacob about all the incredible plans that God had him, that God had a purpose for his life, and that God would bless him. It was at at Bethel that Jacob first built an altar to God in worship. You see, Bethel was where Jacob was right with God, where he was in a right relationship with God. Now, as a little bit of a side note, 
The last time God's speaking to Jacob now, the last time that God had spoke to Jacob was 10 years earlier when he commanded him to leave, her, um, to leave Laban and leave Padam Haran and to get yourself back to Bethel. That was in Genesis 31. But God's been silent for 10 years. Why? Being able to look into the story as we are and seeing what has occurred Where my brain goes is I suspect that God was silent because Jacob wasn't interested in fully obeying God. And when you're not willing to fully obey God, it usually means you're not willing to listen to God. But it's interesting how God sometimes gets our attention, isn't it? Jacob wasn't pursuing God. He was living outside of the will of God by his choice. But now, Jacob's in a crisis. And isn't it interesting that when we are in personal crisis, somehow it improves our spiritual hearing? Have you ever figured that out? But here's what I love about God. When we're struggling and we're down and we've been ignoring God maybe for 30 years, in our crisis, uh, we might turn to God and we might cry out to God in one of the great characteristics or qualities of the love and the grace and the mercy and the patience of God is that God hasn't give up on us. And he was willing now to speak to Jacob to see if he was ready to listen. In fact, God reminded him when he said the words, when, you know, you fled from Esau, he was reminding him, you've been outside of my will, but I'm going to call you again and I'm going to reach out to you again. How many of us waste precious years of our life outside of God's will in our own Shechem? And we'll never get the time back, but the reality is that time away from God, it's never worth it. Oh, it may seem good, feel good at the moment, but it's never worth it. It always brings pain. It always brings loneliness. It eventually brings destruction of some form. So God has called out to Jacob. In his crisis. Look at verse 2. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him. Jacob's ready to listen. Notice. He says, get, he, this is Jacob speaking to his family. He says, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. And purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Here's Jacob recognizing the incredible grace of God. And now Jacob, instead of being passive, instead of being silent, Jacob finally demonstrates spiritual leadership. He finally decides, I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to lead my family in the right way, in the right direction. I'm going to lead my family in righteousness. So he tells his family, all right, gang, no more playing games with God. All of us, we're going to get right with God. First order of business, how do you get right with God? What does Jacob say there? He says, get rid of the foreign gods or the foreign idols that you have with you. Is it possible they have foreign gods, foreign idols with them? Oh, you bet. I think about Rachel, right? Remember Rachel? She took her dad's foreign gods, the teraphim, that she packed away. They had just ransacked Shechem. So they took all the, you know, all the loot. They had everything in the midst of their possession. Now would be all the foreign gods or idols of Shechem. 
The question is this. Is that really that big of a deal? Is it really that important to get rid of idols? Does it really matter? Have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Who's heard of the Ten Commandments? All of us, right? What was the first commandment? Anybody know? What's the first commandment God gave? That's good. Anybody want to say it a different way? Same idea. No other God before you. You love God with everything you have. No other God. Anybody know the second commandment on this side of the room? (laughs) This side of the room, the non-speaking side. Thank you, guys. Anybody know the second commandment? Someone said it. Somebody? Come on, you got to speak up. Thank you. Aaron, you should have no idols. No other God before me. You love me with everything. And you shall have no idols. Why was it so important? Why did God command the people? Because God understands we are tempted to worship another. We are tempted to serve another to lay down and fall at the feet of another, of idols, of foreign and false gods. And so he told the Israelites, you shall have no other God, you shall not worship any graven images. Moses had to warn the people about this idolatry before they entered into the land in Deuteronomy 7. Joshua had to challenge the people to abandon their idols in Joshua 24. Samuel had the same problem in his day in 1 Samuel 7. And all the prophets that followed They had to constantly rebuke the nation of Israel for building these high places where they would serve and worship false gods and false idols. Why is this such a big deal to God? What do idols do for us? What do they represent for us? You see, an idol, I want you to track with me here for a moment. An idol is something that the people would find their security in. Their, their, their safety in, their worth in, their value in, their protection, instead of finding it in God. And I'll tell you the same is true for us today. It is in our idols that we find our security, our worth, our value, our protection, and even our safety. Sure, we don't have little gods that we have on the shelf that we're, you know, worshiping. So what's an idol? If it's not a little God on a shelf for us. An idol is anything that takes away our attention and our devotion to God. An idol is anything that competes with our worship of Almighty God. An idol is anything that has more influence in our life than God. So today we have different idols, right? I mean, for some of us, we might drive our idol to church. And it may not be six inches, it may be eight feet long. Or some of us, we drive that idol back to our other idol that we call a house. Those things represent security, worth, value, even safety for us. How do I know? Well, what if God asked you to move to a housing project in South Sacramento? How would you respond? What would you say? Idolatry today is more than that. It's oftentimes a matter of our heart. For us, our idolatry today is oftentimes pride. 
self-centeredness, greed, gluttony, covetousness, wanting and, and, and wanting possessions. It's ultimately idol. Our idols is ultimately it's our rebellion against God. It's no wonder God has always hated idolatry. And he's commanded against it. So how do you and I get right with God? How do we get on the right path to God? We get rid of our foreign idols. We get rid of our idolatry. Next, Jacob said to his family, he said to get right with God, it's time to purify ourselves. It's time to change our clothes. In the ancient world, they didn't have a giant closet in which they housed clothes that could last for weeks on end. They had one, maybe two pairs of clothes. Genesis 34, what just happened? The nightmare at Shechem. As the people looked down on their clothing, what would the clothing be covered with? Blood. The evidence of their rebellion against God, the evidence of their sin, of their choosing, how far they had fallen from God, And so Jacob said, I want you to get rid of that clothing. And it's time to purify yourself. See, in Scripture, the washing of our body or the purifying of ourselves, the changing of our clothes signified making a new beginning. And so in the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, the old, our old clothing, our old self, it represents our life apart and separated from Jesus. It represents our old way of living. It represents our old sin nature. It represents trying to live for ourselves and our own pleasure. And then throughout the New Testament, we're constantly instructed to get rid of the old, to put on the new, to get rid of the old and walk in step with the new. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said, You are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new. What does that look like for you? For some of us, that might be putting on a new attitude to be more like God. For some of us, that might be putting on a new behavior to be more like God and His behavior. For some of us, that's putting on new priorities. For some of us, it's putting on a new self. What does that look like for you? When you put on the new self, it leads to a right relationship with God. The passage continues in verse 4. Notice what they did in response to what Jacob said. Verse 4, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. One of the parts I love about this story is Jacob finally steps up. He finally decides to lead the way and exercise leadership and spiritual leadership, verses 2 and 3. And what happens when you decide to take courage, when you decide to be a leader and take your leadership seriously? and you exercise that leadership in a God-honoring way, what happens? Obedience follows. Husbands and fathers, or any parent who is raising children on their own, if you haven't been the spiritual leader that God has called you to be, you need to know this morning, it's not too late to start. Jacob, it's been 30 years. 
30 years. But he finally said, today is the day. I'm going to start doing right by God and by my family. And you need to know your spouse, your children, they want you to lead. They want to respect you. They want to follow you. And, and if you decide to go down this path, I, I'll tell you this, it may not be easy initially. There's going to be, I'll tell you right now, a season of transition. But eventually God's purposes can and will be accomplished in your homes. So Jacob buried the false gods. And notice what it says in verse 4 also. What, what did he also buried? They had the, the what? They had the, you know, the rings in the ears, right? Why did they bury those? Why does that matter? What's the big deal? Let's keep some jewelry. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the jewelry back then had the gods, you know, imprinted, stamped on the, the, on the jewelry. And Jacob's, this is Jacob's way of saying, nothing gets through. Wholehearted, full devotion and dedication to God. We leave all of the old life behind. This is total and complete surrender. Now, it's buried where? We look at verse 4. Where is it buried? It's buried at the oak of Shechem. It, that's an important place. It's the same spot that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12. It's the same spot where, where Joshua gathered the people together in Joshua 24. And then he commanded the people. He, he reached out to them and he said to them, I want you to choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, does anybody know the passage? We will what? We'll serve the Lord. You choose. You make a decision. And in that choosing, what did he tell them to do? And the, a few verses later, he said, Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. In other words, Joshua was calling the people Jacob was calling his family, and God is calling you today to draw a line in the sand. God is calling us today to choose. Will we choose to be right with Him, to get right with Him, to get on the right path towards God? Are we going to choose God, or are we going to choose our idols? Choose today whom you're going to follow. Choose today whom you're, you are going to serve. So I ask you the question, have you drawn the line yet? Or are you still in Shechem? Have you drawn the line, but you've been distracted, sidetracked? God is calling Jacob and his family back to himself. And Jacob knew. Jacob knew what was standing in the way. Jacob knew it was the, you know, the idols. He knew, he knew it was the idols. He knew it was the sinful clothing. He's like, take it off, get rid of it, bury it, leave it behind, and let's move ahead towards God. You know what this is? This is a beautiful picture of a word we use in Christianity a lot, and it's the word repentance. What's repentance? Repentance simply means to change course. You're heading one way, and you choose to go a different direction. And having a repentant heart is really the only way to experience a growing, healthy relationship with our God. We talk a lot around here at LifePoint about saying yes to God, right? Just say yes to God. Say yes to His will, to His way, to His leading, to His guidance in your life. If you say yes to God, you will be amazed at how God will change your life, how you'll experience life to the fullest. Say yes to God. You know, there's a second part to the equation. 
You say yes to God, but it's also saying no to sin. Saying no to sin. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance is what every single person does when they first come to faith in Christ. If you've been pursuing this thing called faith, if you've been pursuing God, you've been pursuing Jesus, and you're like, what's my next step? I I know I haven't crossed the line. It starts with a, a faith heart full of repentance. I choose to no longer live for myself, but I'll live for him. All of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's what we did. We saw the baptisms. We're buried to ourself. We're crucified with Christ. And we were raised to walk in a new life. But repentance is also something that God invites you and I to on a daily basis throughout our Christianity. That we constantly, daily go to God. We don't earn our salvation. It's His mercy, His grace. But we go to Him and seek His his face. We repent. We say no to sin. So it really boils down to what are your idols? That's what it boiled down to for Jacob and his family. What are your idols that are getting in the way of you experiencing an incredible life with God? What are your idols? Is it your work? Is it money? Is it kids? Is it the family? It's anything that takes priority over God. And there's going to be a lot that buys for our time and attention. So what do we do? We repent. We change force. Uh, we change a direction. We go in a new direction. We turn to God. Maybe for you it's bitterness, anger, rage, hurt. Maybe for some here it's image. It's education. Maybe for some it's you know, career success. And we just, we just got to get that promotion and make more money. Or we, we have to have the respect of our colleagues and We'll do whatever it takes to go after that, even if it costs us time with our God, with our family, with our more important priorities. For others of us here, maybe it's, you know, it's affluence, collecting whatever we think we need to be happy. Along those lines, I think in America, one of our biggest dangers is, of our, one of our greatest idols is the pursuit of pleasure and leisure. And we live in a country and we have the means to do that more than ever before. We have little time for personal and family devotions. We have little time to get to know our neighbors who might be far from God. We have little time to serve here at LifePoint or serve in our community. There seems to be plenty of time for, you know, the television or movies or video games or social media or sports or other hobbies. An idol is anything that takes your attention and turns it away from God and turns it to something else that competes with your worship of God. Anything that has more influence in your life than God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 just simply says it this way to us. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves and see if you are really in the faith. Test yourselves. God is inviting you this morning to examine where you're at. Are you lost? Are you sidetracked? Are you still trying to figure out this journey towards God? See what's pulling your heart away from God. Say yes to God and say no to sin. Verse 6, Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. 
There he builds an altar. He called the place El Bethel, El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his br- brother. Bethel means house of God. El Bethel means God of the house. Why the rebranding, so to speak? Why the rename? Well, it's kind of the difference between I'm going to church or I'm going to spend time with God. You ever thought about that? Steve, I loved what he shared earlier. That was all about, he was giving us some practical steps about having our focus be on spending time with God. It's not about going to a building or a facility or attending. It's about a relationship with God, fully and solely dedicated to him. House of God or God of the house? I suspect Jacob, 30 years prior, it was about the place. But now he's come to a point of realizing, oh my goodness, it's about a relationship with God. It's not about the house of God as much as it is the God of this house. As we get ready to wrap up in Genesis 35, verses 11 through 14, We're not going to read through that, but that's essentially a repeat of what took place between Jacob and God the first time they met in Bethel 30 years prior. There's nothing really new here, and what's the point? The point is, if you've gotten spiritually sidetracked, if you've wandered from your path to God, if you've allowed yourself to get overwhelmed or overtaken by Shechem or the sin of Shechem, this passage reminds us to engage or to re-engage spiritual disciplines. In other words, go back to that which you did in the beginning when you first came to faith in Christ, when you were excited about your faith and you could read the Bible you know, every day and you just soak it up. You didn't understand it all, but you would just read it and read it. You would come to church as often as you could. You would sing songs. You would pour yourself into God and, and life was good with God. It's not about doing new things. It's about doing what you used to do. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said as much. He warned a church and he said this. He said, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, there's our word. Turn back, repent, and do the things you did at first. Go back to Bethel. Jacob, get back there. If you do not repent, Jesus said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place. Have you drifted from your first love? Have you gotten lost, sidetracked? God is inviting you to come back to Bethel. Don't run, don't avoid. God loves you. He invites every single one of us to repent, to turn our hearts to God. And when we do, Acts chapter 3 said, we begin to experience times of refreshing. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you a simple question that you and God can think about for a moment. How is God calling you back to Bethel? How is God calling you back to Bethel? Would you go to him? Would you tell him, be real with him, be honest with him? Would you spend time of repent in repentance and turn to him?
God, like Jacob, with some of us, you've been waiting patiently for 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years, waiting for us to, to turn to you, to get right with you. God, no matter where anyone is here this morning, I pray that each person would come back to their Bethel with you, that they turn to you. You're calling us. And I pray, God, that each person would respond and say yes to you. And it means they've got to say no to the whatever sin's standing in the way of being in a right relationship with you. So, God, give people the courage through the power of your Holy Spirit to turn their hearts back to you. That we may experience life to the fullest, abundant life, real and better life than we could ever imagine that's only found in Jesus Christ. And God, right now we come to give you an offering, to worship you. Receive this from our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.